On May 13th, 2015, Savas Savopoulos, his wife Amy, their 10-year-old son Philip, and their housekeeper Vera Figueroa were held for 19 hours in their home in Washington, D.C. DNA found on pizza crust that was left inside the home led police to arrest one man, Darren Went. He's pled not guilty to all charges against him. He's currently in jail, and his trial is set for September 2018. In episode four, Jim Trainum, the retired D.C. homicide detective, gave this quote. If you have the right victim, if you do look at an airplane hijacking, typically an airplane hijacking, especially back in the day, one hijacker could control all of those people because they were the one with the weapon and everybody was going to be compliant. They learned, give the person what they want and we'll be safe. I've been thinking about that statement. Did the Savopoulos family and their housekeeper, Vera, have chances to escape and notify someone that they were being held against their will? This is something I've pondered a lot over the past several months. It's impossible to put yourself in a hostage victim's shoes. Of course, I think I'd run or I'd try to notify someone that something was wrong, but who knows? It's naive to make that assumption. But it did appear that there were many moments that could have shifted the course of events. It's kind of hard to know where to start on this, so we'll start chronologically. On May 13th, 2015, the night the Savopoulos family was first held hostage, Savas makes a phone call to Nellie Gutierrez in the late evening. Nellie is the maid who is still alive and spoke to us in earlier episodes. Savas tells her not to come to work the next day. Hey, Nellie, it's Sava. Amy is in bed sick tonight, and she was sick this afternoon. And Vera offered to stay and help her out because, you know, we're going through some stuff with Philip. So she's going to stay the night here, okay? Oh, and would you send me a text when you get the message just so I can make sure? Thanks, Nellie. Good night. But Nellie never listens to that message. Not until the following day, around 11 a.m., and by that time, it was too late. Nellie told us that the night that Savas left the message, she was out to dinner with family and friends for a celebration. As you might remember, Nellie worked for the family only on a per diem basis. She was supposed to be at the Savopolis home the day the family was murdered, but she said she had a bad feeling that morning. She grabbed the keys to the Savopolis home, which she had a set for years, but she didn't feel good about going. When I wake up that day... I have something inside of me that I I want to go, but I don't want to go. I don't know. So I send this test message to this other family in McLean. I, I work for them on Friday because they own another place. And when I ask her, can I come over tomorrow? She said, yes, but come late. So between her decision, my decision to go over to my clean. I believe that saved my life. As Nellie mentioned, she decided to go to her client's home in McLean, Virginia that morning. After she finishes with the client, she listens to the message that Savas had left her the night before. And shortly after that, she gets a phone call from another Savopolis family member asking her to return to the home. That family member had heard that the Savopolis family mansion was on fire. And so then you went over to the house, right? Is mm-hmm. that kind of how the series of events went that day on the 14th? Mm-hmm. You get, you finally listened to the voice message and instinctually in your gut, you felt like something was wrong. Yeah, I felt something was wrong, but I really went over there because one of the relatives called me and said that, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm fine. 
are you not working today? I say, yes, but I'm here in McLean because I decided to go over to McLean. So then when she explained to me that um, something happened at the Sabupolos mansion, she asked me if I can go over there and make sure that everything is okay. That's when I I decided to go, you know, I drove all the way to McLean to um, the woodlands and, and that's when I find out the that something was wrong. What about security in the neighborhood? Didn't the Savopolis family have an elaborate security system? And what about that neighborhood watch that constantly is patrolling in the Savopolis neighborhood? Nellie told us that the Savopolis family did have an alarm system and that most of the time it was on, but she didn't know the brand or who serviced it. Also, there's several security groups that patrol the neighborhood. On foot patrols, mobile patrols, they even have services where they'll knock on your door to make sure you're okay. But we were unable to confirm exactly what security system the Savopolis family used or if they were even a part of that ongoing neighborhood roaming patrol that some of these security groups offer. What we were able to do is speak to a security guard who works in the neighborhood and is familiar with some of the patrols and protocol. Charles is very young, early 20s, big smile, seems competent, but not intimidating. Charles told us that he was hired by the security firm that he works for about two months after the Savopolis murders. And Charles gave us context on how often patrol would have been passing the Savopolis home on the night that they were murdered. On a typical day, if you're in this neighborhood, how often would you be coming by like Woodland. How many times would you be coming by that house, let's say in an hour or a, a six hour shift? Well. When I patrol, uh, we actually have two different routes within this neighborhood. Um, there is approximately a distance of maybe like maybe 10 minutes each route. So I'm coming past this house like within every 10, 15 minutes. Wow. So, and do you know if that would have been the same around the May 15th incident when the, the kidnapping or the being held hostage and the fire mm -hmm. happened? Would, do you think you guys would have been on a roughly similar schedule? You would have been coming by the house every 10, 15 minutes? I believe that would have happened, you know, if um, on that day of that incident, um, being as though I don't think anything just specially changed since that incident occurred. I believe we just went on with... You know, I believe our ship just stayed at the same. Stayed the same. Yeah. Regardless of how often UA security or another security system may have been patrolling the neighborhood, we know that the Savopolis family never alarmed them that anything was wrong. There was also no forced entry to the home, according to police. There was a boot mark found on a door, but that was quickly identified as one of the firefighters who was responding to the incident. There was no other signs of a kicked-in door or a broken glass. What authorities did say was that whoever killed the three Savopolis family members and Vera had knowledge of the family's habit and of their security system, whether it was on or whether it was off. Nelly Gutierrez had told authorities through the Washington Post that the security system was always on. Nelly also made us aware of another element they may have raised, questioned, or given the Savopolises a shred of hope. The Savopolis family dogs. The family had two dogs, one of those dogs, according to Nellie, was a small puppy named Chicken. But Ginger, the other family dog, was older and protective. Nellie says that Ginger would have been aggressive to strangers if someone had entered the home. So if somebody entered the house that Ginger d didn't know, do you think she would have been, like, barking and, and really wound up or no? I say yes. 
because every time when I was there, you know, she was kind of like protecting us. It was so difficult, you know, to work around with a strain because she can jump and attack the person if it's possible. Right. So the people that she would have been familiar with would have, Ginger would have known you. She would have known Vera. Would she have known Jordan? Like if Jordan came into the house, would she have known Jordan? Yeah, and um, I say yes because she he used to come over and he was so nice with the dog. So and Ginger was very smart dog. So it's like, oh, you treat me well, so you you're welcome. According to the Washington Post, in an article that was published in July of 2015, the Post says that they spoke to an authority that was familiar with the case that told them that duct tape was seen across the doggy door that led to the kitchen, keeping the family's two dogs in the backyard. If Ginger was aggressive, she never had her chance to help the family. And as far as we know, no one in the neighborhood called police that night or the following morning to report two dogs out or that they were barking. Another big moment for the Savopolis family that could have changed the course of the events was the call to Domino's Pizza. We know sometime late on the evening of May 13th, either the Savopolises, one of them themselves, or someone inside the home using their cell phone makes a call to Domino's Pizza with what seems like an odd request. They tell Domino's to leave the pizza outside on the stoop and there will be tip money in an envelope. Domino's does just that. And the driver takes off into the night, never questioning it. We spoke with a longtime Domino's manager at the exact Domino's location in Washington, D.C. that the Savopolises had ordered the pizza from. We tried to get in touch with the actual delivery driver, but he left shortly after the Savopolis incident, according to a manager at Domino's, and no one could remember his name. Stephen Henry has been with Domino's for 17 years, and he agreed to speak with us based on his own experience, but not as a representative of Domino's. He's a tall, thin man with a very short haircut. And when we spoke to him, he was just ending his shift at Domino's. So he was covered in spots of flour. He told us that they get all kinds of crazy requests. And although it might've seemed odd, it wasn't to Domino's. To me, it seems odd, but you said you guys get all kinds of requests. Yeah, I'm saying to a person that really doesn't know about it, they always think, oh man, they just called to leave the pizza there. We're not knowing that we get a lot of a lot of calls like that. I'm saying maybe maybe that in the middle of the night, that's another, you know, maybe. If I was working that night, you know, maybe I would have, you know. Then again, we've had crazier requests and all types of stuff, you know, so we probably still look past it and didn't think of it. Steve told us that that day, before the Savopolis family had ordered the pizzas, he was working the day shift until about three o'clock. And he goes on to give us an example of some of the bizarre calls that they've had over the years. Like you were saying, you get all kinds of different requests. And you even had a woman once, didn't she want you to like... Leave the pizza on the ground, walk away, she'll get the pizza, put the money, and then you come back and get the money. Plus, Steve says, the Domino's is in a rich neighborhood. And you don't think anything like a murder or a family being held hostage is going to happen near the vice president's home. This is an affluent neighborhood, so you wouldn't think, you know... And it's paid for. So I can understand whoever's working didn't even really think about, you know, just go and deliver the pizza and come back. Perhaps the best opportunity that the Savopolis family had to thwart this incident was when Vera's husband, Bernardo Alfaro, showed up to the home the next morning on May 14th. 
As Nellie told us, Vera never stayed overnight at the Sabopolis home, ever. So I can only imagine the torture and terrible feeling Vera's husband must have had the night of the 13th in order to show up the next day at 9 a.m. knocking on the Sabopolis door. Vera's husband and kids could not be reached for an interview, despite the fact that we tried multiple times. Nellie told us she no longer speaks to Vera's family. So all we know about that moment is from a press story. When Bernardo comes to the door, he's shooed away by a phone call from Savas, telling him that Amy wasn't feeling well and Vera had gone to the hospital with her. Here's Bernardo from an earlier interview, and it's clear how nervous he was. And every time I called the phone, it was just going straight to the voicemail. Bernardo Alfaro's concerns grew with every hour. He couldn't get in touch with his wife last Wednesday night. She always called me to stay late or that day. Nothing. All these moments of chance, not meant to be. I wanted to speak with someone who understood the psychology of what happens when you're being held hostage. Gary Newsner, in addition to being an FBI hostage negotiator for 23 years of his career, retired as the chief of the FBI's crisis negotiation unit. And he now speaks all across the country on his time in the FBI. Gary has a decorated career, including being one of the head negotiators for the famous Waco siege in 1993 that ended with 76 people being killed. Gary himself talked to Branch Davidian leader, David Koresh. Gary has had some intense standoffs. His hair is gray now, he's very chatty, and he lives down in Southern Virginia. I asked Gary about the Savopoulos family being held hostage. Now, Gary has no association or inside knowledge of this case. He didn't work on it. He's solely speaking to us on his past experience. I wanted to know in kidnapping situation like what the Savopoulos went through, is it normal that the victims don't seem to take advantage of opportunities that it appeared that they had, whether it was the pizza guy or Vera's husband coming to the door and knocking. What's normal is that everything's normal, every reaction and every behavior. So the fact that these things occur do not in and of themselves raise any suspicions for me. For example, uh, I worked a case once in Columbia where a guy lands at the airport and a fellow walks up to him right at the baggage claim, puts a gun to his head and marches him right out of the airport and kidnaps him. All the guy had to do is feign that he was fainting or seek help elsewhere, but he just complied. When we're caught off guard and events take place that we're not used to, you can get a wide range of behavior. And the, typically the first thing that kicks in is the mode to survive. You know, it's the old fight or flight, or in this case, compliance. So the person won't hurt you or their family. So I, I would say that if someone's family particularly feels, if they feel their family's threatened, I'm not surprised at what things they might do that in hindsight would appear to be unwise or self-destructive or not taking advantage of an opportunity. Then I wanted to ask Gary, because he's obviously seen a lot of hostage situations, in his opinion, is it likely that one person could hold three adults and one child for 19 hours without any additional help? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly highly possible. Is it typical? No. I mean, there are logistic requirements of holding multiple people hostage. They have to go to the bathroom. They have to be fed. They have to be kept quiet. Someone has to answer the door when the pizza comes, and that might raise some suspicion. So there, there's a number of challenges and obstacles faced. That alone would not convince me that there was, say, more than one perpetrator, because it is possible for one person through intimidation, 
through threats to control people and to get their compliance. But again, we run into someone who finds the Savopolis murders and the hostage situation incredibly unusual. Gary told us that in his 20 plus years of negotiations, he had never heard of a kidnapped victim texting a driver and calling an accountant multiple times for money and that not raising alarm. I'm not familiar with a scenario like that where someone texts somebody at the company and says, give this big uh, amount of money to someone I'm sending over to pick it up. I mean, that would raise a lot of questions. Well, why in the middle of the night are you asking for this sum of money? What has this got to do with business? And you would think that it would typically trigger the person who's being asked to get the money from the company. It would trigger some sort of reaction where they notify the police or the authorities. It's just, um, I'm not saying it didn't happen that way, but it strikes me as being unusual and would raise some you know, questions in my mind as to what was going on here. Like all the other officials that we spoke to in law enforcement who've appeared on this podcast, Gary was unified in saying that he believed that DC police must have looked at every scenario, every situation. But he also brought up something that we hadn't thought of, including the idea that Savas may have kidnapped himself. Now, Gary says that although unusual, it does happen. There are sometimes are cases where the, the actual victim is involved in getting money from their own accounts to uh, cover debts, gambling debts, or, or other financial matters, and then claiming it against the company or insurance that they were held hostage and, and forced to pay this money. I'm, I'm not suggesting that happened here, but it was something that I imagine the police would look at, you know, what sort of debt this person have. They may have a lot of outward appearances of affluence, but that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. So what would be the motivations of the victim and everybody else involved? And, you know, the old trail that we hear about in the news now is follow follow the money and, and see where it comes from and where it's going. And, you know, so I, I would say, uh, I suspect the police know a great deal more, but this case is certainly not typical. As our conversation wrapped up, we again finding ourselves having more questions than getting answers from Gary. But an investigation should really try to take into account the relationships. And, and it seems to me an odd assortment of characters here that have a prior association. And um, I would also want to know, you know, who, who was the individual contact that came up with the money and what questions did they ask or not ask when the victim calls up and says, put $40,000 together and give it to my driver. I mean, I would ask questions if it was me, and I, th I think most people would, and I suspect this person did as well. But it'd be interesting to know what rationale he was told, you know, as to why this money was needed. And, you know, did that sound logical and appropriate to him, or did it raise suspicions? So is this the kind of thing that the victim has done in the past, make him impulsive sort of out-of-the-norm decisions relative to business? I mean, was this sort of a typical thing? Is this... Uh, you know, the, the mark of an eccentric wealthy guy, or is this totally out of character with how he operated? And if it was out of character, why didn't this raise alarm bells? Follow the money. An eccentric millionaire with odd connections? The name of the accountant? What will be revealed next in the Savopolis case? We explore that and we discuss the upcoming trial of Darren Wendt on our final episode. Coming up on The Mansion Murders. Do you think right now the prosecution has enough evidence and a strong enough case to convict Erin White? I analogize it to Casey Anthony, which is there's no doubt in my mind she killed her child. 
But what evidence is there that she did it? The question really isn't where the pizza was delivered. Okay. And uh, and I can see a, a, a uh, the reason a defense attorney is going to make that argument is because you have to fight with what you have. What they're lacking is motive, the other participants in it. He clearly didn't do it by himself. Do you still and, believe that? Yeah, it's... Um, you know, these home invasions, the, the ones I've had, they're, they're pulled off by multiple guys. What the argument will be is that we know the reason I got there because unless somebody's going to argue that somehow the victims had Winston DNA, you know, right. kind of sitting around the house right. and, and decide they were going to put a little saliva on that, we know I got there because we, know, we now know who ate the pizza. Thank you for listening to The Mansion Murders, a Fox 5 true crime podcast. And a big thanks to our team for putting this show together. Ronnie McRae, shooter and editor. Judith Ayers, researcher. Dan Rabin for an extra set of ears. And also to Gary Newsner. If you want more Mansion Murders, you can see what went into this episode. Visit our YouTube page for a video recap. Just search Fox 5 DC or visit our website, fox5dc.com. I'm Sarah Frazier. We'll see you next week. <laughs> 